Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Over the course of the pandemic, residents and policymakers have debated public health guidelines. But advocates for the incarcerated say there's not a, quote, comprehensive state plan to protect people from COVID-19 in Connecticut's correctional facilities. Coming up, we hear what advocates want lawmakers to consider before the legislative session ends on Wednesday. First, a Starbucks in West Hartford is the first Starbucks store in Connecticut to have a majority of its staff join a union organizing drive. In just a few minutes, we'll hear from employee Cusco Gong about the reasons why. Nationwide, the National Labor Relations Board says petitions for union representation have increased more than 50 percent over the last year. For more context, joining us now on Zoom is Andrea Shu, NPR's labor and workplace correspondent. Andrea, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Now, Andrea, you recently wrote about uh, the the changing face of the labor movement in our Mm -hmm. country. And when we think about the demographics, uh, tell us uh, who's joining unions today. Well, I looked at who is petitioning for union elections, and um, I did this by looking at the National Labor Relations Board's records on these union election petitions and found that, indeed, um, there's been a surge in these uh, petitions for union elections. It covers these are private sector companies. And I have to say, Starbucks makes up something like a quarter, close to a quarter of all the union election petitions filed um, in 2022 so far this year. And, you know, this is a lot of younger people, a lot of younger workers, even though younger workers are among the least unionized in the U.S. Um, And um, we are also seeing a lot of people of color, people in their 20s. There's also, of course, been this very prominent union drive at Amazon, which is also a lot of workers of color. So um, the yeah, the demographics are changing. I think traditionally, you, you think about union workers, you think about people in manufacturing, you might think about people in construction. Right now, the there's there is a surge in workers in food services who are seeking union representation. And that's striking. You had reported that when we look at food and drink establishments, they're the least unionized workplaces. What, 1% in the sector? Yeah, that, that was those were the Labor Department numbers from 2021. 1.2% of um, food and drink, you know, workers at food and drink establishments are unionized. So, you know, Starbucks so far, I think it's 40-some stores that have now voted to unionize. Starbucks has 9,000 stores or so across the U.S. So it's a small number, but it has grown so fast. And I think that's what has struck everyone, just the speed of this union campaign. You know, the first uh, Starbucks stores voted to unionize last December. And, you know, since then, every every day there are 
pretty much every day there are new stores, uh, Starbucks stores who are submitting the paperwork for union elections. And what that means is they need to get at least 30% of the workers to sign union cards saying, we are interested in a union that goes to the National Labor Relations Board and um, that starts off the process for a union election, which is what we're seeing. So last week alone, I think there were something like a dozen or maybe 13 vote counts, um, you know, stores who had voted, you know, on whether or not to unionize. And I think they won all but one of those. So certainly we're seeing a, a fast paced campaign at Starbucks. Coming up, we're going to hear from a Connecticut resident, part of efforts to launch a union drive at the first uh, Connecticut Starbucks. Before we get there, uh, Andrea, you mentioned Amazon. A lot of people have been paying attention uh, to Mm -hmm. the Amazon uh, warehouse at Staten Island. And so there's actually some news happening pretty soon. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So this afternoon, um, the vote count in the second warehouse election on Staten Island is going to start and probably finish um, today. So the first Amazon warehouse to unionize did so about a month ago, just over a month ago. It was a huge deal. It was, you know, this nobody really expected this Amazon labor union, which was founded by former and current workers at the warehouse to win this union election against you know this giant this the giant of the e-commerce world um that nobody so far has been able to unionize and that vote i mean it stunned i think even labor experts it stunned certainly the company um workers voted 55 percent um to about 45 percent to unionize there so the labor union does have momentum did have momentum going into the second election at a smaller warehouse on staten island it's about 1500 workers and we will know this afternoon whether they have um, also voted to unionize you mentioned the e-commerce giant has amazon yet recognized uh, the the first victory uh, with uh, the staten island warehouse it has not. His, it has filed objections to that for, to that election, that first election on Staten Island. It has um, charged that the National Labor Relations Board, the regional office, favored the union and helped facilitate the victory there. It's charged that the Amazon Labor Union threatened and harassed employees who didn't support the union. So Amazon, you know, has spent millions of dollars fighting this union campaign and has continued to do so. And um, a hearing is going to be held to consider those objections, um, I don't think a date has been set yet, but, but you know, like you say, Amazon has yet to recognize that union. I will say Amazon did last week give a small concession to the union to, and to the workers. They, um, the company had allowed workers to keep their cell phones on them while working during the pandemic as a way for them to contact their families in case of personal emergencies or they had childcare issues. That was set to be to be rolled back. They were going to once again ban cell phones um, at work. But last week, Amazon said, no, actually, we're going to keep this policy because it has proven to work. So that was a small concession. But that aside, it does appear Amazon is continuing to fight this union campaign. And getting back uh, to Starbucks, uh, with uh, many uh, Starbucks workers really driving the surge, as you reported, in union organization nationwide. I understand you were at a Virginia Starbucks when they were attempting to unionize. Can you talk about some of the factors and what they were looking for in terms of workplace protections? Yeah, you know, interestingly, the the workers I spoke to, you know, had had mostly been at Starbucks for three or four years, and they came to Starbucks partly because they had heard this was a great company and 
you know, three of the four workers I talked to had used the education benefits, which, um, you know, Starbucks will pay full tuition for an online um, college degree through Arizona State University. But when the pandemic hit, they just faced all kinds of challenges. Um, they were worried about their, their, you know, their exposure to COVID. And one of the um, people I spoke with said they wanted to to be able to just place drinks outside the door, um, to take orders online and to make the drinks inside and put them outside the door for customers to pick up. They felt that would be the safer way to handle this. You know, think about this as the spring 2020 when there were so many unknowns and a lot of people were, were terrified of getting sick, um, pre-vaccines and all that. So um, they were overruled by management and it kind of set off this bad feeling that, you know, they, they wanted more say in how their stores were run and, and what they could do to protect themselves from, from COVID. And then through the pandemic, they felt there were all kinds of challenges, you know, confrontations with customers over masks and, you know, feeling short staffed at, you know, locations with drive throughs where the, the business just exploded because nobody wanted to be inside stores and their feelings towards Starbucks just soured. And, and now they say they want, you know, a lot more control over their schedules and, and um, they want pay raises and they, they just want more of a, more of a say, they want a seat at the table is what I heard from the, from the Virginia workers. You're hearing where we live on Connecticut Public Radio with us on Zoom, Andrea Shu, NPR's labor and workplace correspondent. As we learn about union organizing efforts increasing across our country, as Andrea Shu reported, Starbucks workers nationwide are driving this surge. And here in Connecticut, uh, joining us now is an employee at one West Hartford Starbucks, the first Connecticut store to launch a union drive. Cusco Gong is a barista and organizer at this Starbucks in Corbin's Corner. Cusco, welcome to our show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you've been an employee or partner there for five years. I'm wondering if you can talk about what it's been like to work pre-pandemic and then post-pandemic, or not post-pandemic, but the fact that we've been at this now for more than two years and what led to the uh, union drive being launched. I mean, pre-pandemic, it was not not great. I mean, um, I think things have really been exacerbated by by the pandemic to make it a lot worse. I think a lot of what Andrea said is is kind of really funny and also a little bit disheartening because those are even though she was in a in a store in Virginia, that is exactly mirroring our experience of of what happened during the pandemic. We we really had a lot of issues with different guidelines being constantly changed on us and and really an issue of safety overall of of whether or not we would be able to continue working at our stores just because we were considered essential workers. So while we did close for a couple months initially, um, we did end up opening up much, uh, much, uh, only a little bit after that. So that was, um, that was a real concern for a lot of us at, at the time, because again, we, we were not vaccinated. And at this point, Starbucks still has really no, no, um, no policies on on vaccinations aside from aside from maybe disclosing your your status um but it really just became uh, a big issue and that is kind of our breaking point of, of what made us decide to organize so worried about COVID-19 exposure but when we think about employees uh, wanting to have more of a say as Andrea Shu mentioned uh, thinking about you know having a livable wage uh, and, and not having to work multiple jobs I mean what has been your experience and uh, the experience of your your team members 
Well, in our letter to the CEO, which is something that we put out when we did file our petition, um, we addressed the fact that a lot of us at the store do have multiple jobs. I personally have multiple jobs myself, and it is uh, really difficult to kind of pay rent, pay pay for food, pay for utilities, all just with Starbucks, just because of how limited our hours are. That is definitely one of our personal organizing goals to make sure that we do have guaranteed hours and guaranteed wages that make sure that if someone wants to just work at our store and and not have to work multiple jobs just to just to make a living, um, that would be one of our goals. I understand uh, one of the big requests is thinking about the, the part-time threshold. If employees work more than 20 hours, they're entitled to benefits. I'm wondering if you can talk more about that and you know what has been the experience of, of people at the Corbin's Corner or Starbucks. Um, well, for Starbucks in general, uh, our busiest season is usually around the holidays, and it tends to be the trend after that is typically business kind of kind of wanes off a little bit and we we do generally get our hours cut around that time um i think particularly this year i'm not sure if it's at all related to to the events that are that are going on we have seen our hours just cut very consistently a lot of people at our store are are struggling to even reach that 20 hours uh 20 hours thresholds and that is unfortunately the threshold for getting a lot of the great benefits that that Starbucks offers. Um, I am personally in the education program as well, and that is something that requires a a 20-hour week minimum. Um, I have known partners who have been able not been able to to make that minimum and have had their had their their education benefits cut out from under them because of that. And we're just really hoping that. We, we, when we get hired, we kind of put in a certain amount of hours that we hope to be able to work, to work. And um, we've really just not been getting that. So we really hope that we'd be able to, to get some guarantee of that um, with, with our unionization efforts. I understand more than 40 Starbucks stores across the U.S. have voted to unionize. Uh, as Andrea mentioned, more than 250, I believe, have sought elections with new filings every day. So talk about this momentum, uh, Cusco, um, and what has been the reaction um, of the community uh, to what uh, you and your team are asking for at the Corbin's Corner Starbucks? I mean, it's honestly really amazing. I think we never would have had the courage to, to stand up or file for for any sort of petition or anything if we hadn't heard about the other starbuckses that that had done so before us i think we've addressed this before but but buffalo is was really a point of inspiration for for a lot of different stores and particularly for us after hearing about buffalo um there are a couple stores in boston that filed very very soon after that and hearing about boston that that's so close to us that's literally just a state away so that kind of made us feel that that we could do it and in terms of community response, I mean, we've only really gotten positive things. I mean, there'll there'll be people who come in and say that that we're doing a great job and that they they really hope that that we uh, we stay strong and 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 get through this. Um, obviously, there have been a couple um, kind of dissenters on on social media and stuff like that, but really nothing in person. Um, so knowing the fact that they have to hide behind a screen or something to to voice their negative opinion really kind of almost um, does a disservice to to the message that they have because everybody who supports us is really re- willing to come out and and say it right to our faces and 
and it's it's been really really helpful for mm-hmm. for our, for our efforts. When you cited some of the other stores uh, that have voted uh, either to file petitions or voted uh, to unionize, are you having conversations with them? What other kind of support are are you receiving? So it's been really great. Initially, we did contact um, the most of the Starbucks stores are organizing with a with a nonprofit called Workers United. So we did contact them, but actually, what they also did was put us in contact with a lot of different organizers from mostly from the Buffalo store, but I believe they're trying to branch out and and have more organizers from stores around the country from um, other stores that have unionized. So we've been in contact with some of those original organizers from, from the store in Buffalo and it's and it's really cool to have it be a partner led experience because they've gone through exactly what what we're going through right now. And what can you tell us about the what stage you're at in terms of collective bargaining? Um, for us personally, uh, we're not really near that, unfortunately. Um, we are currently waiting for our um, our election date for our union vote. Uh, but as for collective bargaining, um, since we are uni- unionizing with the same union for, for the most part uh, pro- across the board, we're really hoping that we could make a kind of larger scale contract, not a store to store contract, maybe not necessarily company wide either, but um, with just as many stores kind of under that umbrella as possible. And we're kind of trying to form a uh, contract generally over all that. And there's kind of a list of things. Um, Us personally, definitely we're looking for guaranteed hours and higher wages, but there are a ton of other things as well. Um, Like we had a daily food and um, beverage markout um, benefit during the pandemic that they that they cut after that. So we're hoping to reinstate that um, when people call out. Uh, if if the partners picking up the slack have to do extra labor because of that, we're hoping that the way that that could be distributed is among the different partners who had to perform that extra labor with that one person short. Um, and there's just a bunch of uh, things like that that we're trying to get organized, but obviously that is before negotiations. You've been hearing Cusco Gong, a barista and organizer at the Corbin's Corner Starbucks in West Hartford. Still with us on Zoom, Andrea Shu, NPR's labor and workplace correspondent. What has been uh, Starbucks' uh, corporate uh, response uh, to what employees are asking? Yeah, well, well, Howard Schultz, you know, the longtime leader of Starbucks who came back as the interim CEO, has always said, you know, we, I want to be able to work directly with our partners. As you say, they call employees partners at Starbucks because they do have stock options. In fact, Cusco, do you, um, do you have stock options? Have you been there long enough? I'm not sure if Cusco is still on the line, but um, in any event, so uh, Howard Schultz has said, you know, we're better off without somebody in between us, without a party in between us. And I think a lot of workers have taken great offense at this because they say, it's not like there's an organization between us and you, we are your employees. We are the ones who are asking for a union. Um, But Starbucks, you know, is is fighting this. And they, you know, they have said that, um, they have pointed to to the generous benefits they have offered over, years and they have pointed to the things that they've offered um, employees during the pandemic. Cusco mentioned the food and drink, the daily food and drink markout as one thing that workers lost that they're trying to get back. Well, um, Starbucks says that instead it has um, maybe not in place, but they've, they've evolved the pandemic benefits as the health emergency itself has evolved. So now they offer 
isolation leave. If you've been exposed to COVID, the company says you can take five days of paid leave um, twice per quarter. So they continue to maintain that they are offering competitive wages, um, generous benefits, and that they will continue to work directly with their employees to make it a, a, a great place to work. Um, that's basically been Starbucks's argument. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to continue talking about some of the factors driving more workers to unionize. But I want to thank Cusco Gong again for joining us, a barista at Corbin's Corner Starbucks in West Hartford. Andrea Shu, NPR's labor and workplace correspondent, will stay with us. And after the break, we're going to learn about a situation at a New Haven charter school that has parents and staff upset with school leadership over the non-renewal of several teacher contracts. The community questions whether these non-renewals were tied to a majority of teachers voting to unionize last year. More after a short break. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Recently, Lucy Gelman, editor of the Arts Council of Greater New Haven's Arts Paper, highlighted a situation happening at a local charter school, the Common Ground High School. Parents and staff there are upset with school leadership over the non-renewal of several teacher contracts at the school, and the community questions whether the non-renewals were tied to a majority of teachers voting to unionize last year. School leadership disputes that, saying the decision is tied to finances. Executive Director Monica Machera-Philpu said in a statement, quote, the four non-renewals at our April board meeting are within the normal course of operations of any school working to finalize a budget and staffing plan and in keeping with Connecticut teacher tenure law. She also says, we deeply regret any appearance this process is related to union organizing. The community response we've seen tells us we need greater transparency and outreach on our financial management, and we're initiating a series of community discussions as a starting point to that. Well, we wanted to hear more uh, from the union and staff. So joining us now on Zoom is Chelsea Farrell, an organizer with UAW Local 2110 that covers more than 3,000 workers in universities, publishing, museums, law firms, and other offices. Chelsea, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you for having me, Lucy. So uh, Common Ground High School, it's a pretty unique uh, New Haven charter school. It has an on-site farm, uh, there's an environmental education. So I'm wondering if you can just give us some background on the unionization effort at that school last year. 
Yeah, of course. Um, and you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. Common Ground really is a, a phenomenal institution here in New Haven, um, you know, with this incredible lens through education where they, they really embrace social and environmental justice. You know, and I think because of that and its reputation, it ha has really attracted uh, a dedicated staff, both teachers, support educators, environmental educators, administrators, who, who earnestly care about the institution um, and care about the mission and the students. And I think, you know, I, that was something that we certainly heard a lot throughout the organizing, that people really care about this institution and they wanna have the right to actually have a voice in how it's run, right? They wanna actually have a voice in their conditions um, of employment. And so that was something that we heard across the board from people when we were organizing, you know, and we, we successfully organized late last fall um, and the staff voted overwhelmingly by over 90% to unionize. Um, again, like thinking about how ways that they could have an actual voice in how the institution was was run. Now, I read that part of that statement from the executive director of, of Common Ground High School. I understand that four teachers there were recently sent these non-renewal letters over spring break. So that was about a week after the union's first round of collective bargaining. So that's something that, that the school community and parents have raised. Yeah, it, it certainly was was deeply concerning. Actually, we um, we were alerted to this just a couple of days before our first collective bargaining session. Um, so certainly, we found it to be an inauspicious start, um, you know, to to our initial bargaining session, um, you know, and we're we're deeply concerned about these non renewals. You know, we don't see them as normal practice for what happens at Common Ground from year to year. Um, you know, and I think more importantly, Common Ground did not bargain with us over these non-renewals. Um, so as it stands right now, we have filed a charge, at, an unfair labor practice charge at the National Labor Relations Board, board um, you know, asserting that they, they failed to bargain over these non-renewals. And these teachers that are not being renewed, they were untenured. Again, uh, Common Grounds Executive Director Monica Machera-Filpu insists they were let go because of shifting financial and academic priorities. Uh, at that last, I believe it was last Monday, the board meeting, uh, there was a slide that read, quote, we're not firing teachers, we're following a process for reduction in staff that includes following tenure law and working with the union. So how do you respond to that, Chelsea? Well, you know, as you know, as I've said, and I think um, our committee member Emily will like say as well. You know, we've been trying to get management to the table to bargain over these changes because, you know, along with these four non-renewals, they've also announced a restructuring plan um, that could potentially affect, you know, almost one fourth of instructional staff. Um, you know, and. The reasoning that we've been told so far, you know, just doesn't seem to add up. You know, the there's been reasons about financials. There has been reasons about meeting student needs, um, but you know, the ground is pretty is pretty shaky, and it seems like the story is is often shifting. You know, so we just really haven't been given like a really a believable answer as to why this is happening. So we've requested information on it and we're scheduled to meet with management on, on Wednesday, um, really just to, to seek some clarity and some answers because nothing we've been told so far seems to, seems to make sense. Mm -hmm. 
You mentioned Emily. That's Emily Schmidt, who's a chemistry and physics teacher at Common Ground High School in New Haven and also a union member. member. Emily's with us on Zoom. Emily, so I wanted to hear uh, from you about how you respond to the leadership statements. You again were at that board meeting. What did you share? Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for making time for us. You know, it's frustrating. I think I echo what Chelsea has said about this really not feeling like a normal course of operations. Um, I've been at Common Ground for almost seven years now and have definitely never seen any non-renewals taking place. I think that what's come out of this for me is a lot. I'm seeing a lot of the same misconceptions that you hear about unionizing a lot and um, it's funny to hear Cusco and Andrea talk about Starbucks because even though we are a small nonprofit, there's a lot of what they're saying that really resonates with us. Um, I think one of our greatest hopes in unionizing, we really believe in the mission of Common Ground um, in its desire to make a more just and sustainable world. And our one of our greatest hopes in unionizing was to really protect the things that we do well and the benefits that we do have, but also to be able to advocate for improvements in a way that's fair and impartial. Um, so when I hear Cusco saying that, um, you know, we're really hoping to have more of a say, I think that that has been our hope at Common Ground as well. And it's been really frustrating to receive, um, you know, non-renewals, restructuring plans, um, and we're told that this is just the draft. There's, you know, there's still room for discussion. And I think that there's a, a disconnect happening where, um, the union needs to be involved in the actual drafting process that we shouldn't be responding to the impact of decisions that have already been made, that we actually need to be in the decision making together. And so I think that my greatest hope going forward and, and with this meeting on Wednesday, that we can really get some answers and have some some productive dialogue around what's really going on and and actually come to some agreements together about how we need to move forward. Uh, when I mentioned that meeting last Monday, you actually, I believe, spoke, right, and talked about uh, the student-teacher ratios. And I'm wondering if you can share that with us. Sure. So one of the things that we've been hearing is that um, our staff numbers have increased because of a need for a higher support during the pandemic, as well as the availability of COVID-19 relief funding, and that these non-renewals are simply a return to our staffing levels that existed before the pandemic. Um, and as a person who's been at Common Ground for um, quite some time now, um, I went back into uh, our staffing uh, lists from past years and found that that was just not the case. Um, and in fact, the staffing that is proposed for next year um, would be in alignment with staffing that goes back as far as 2018. That's the last time we had that um, few instructional staff and we had significantly fewer students at the time. So as we're adding students each year, the state has given us additional seats. Logically, we would want to expand instructional staff as well so that we can keep our student-teacher ratios low. And as the executive director and our school director have said, um, we have a high needs population that need a lot of support and we need instructional staff to be able to do that. Um, but in February 2020, 
um, before we had any idea of the havoc that would come from the pandemic or the possibility of any type of relief funding, we had the biggest staff that we ever had, um, even larger than what we have right now. And so this idea that we are returning to pre-pandemic numbers um, is just not, doesn't correlate with my experience and, and with the people that I've worked with. We talked a lot about um, the the conversations that the school leadership are having, and obviously um, pushback um, from staff. But I'm wondering how the students have responded, Emily. So, students and families, I think, have been really upset. I think it goes without saying that everyone knows we need teachers, and higher student teacher ratios. Um, does not benefit students. And especially right now, we're in a teacher shortage. That's a really big challenge. I think um, students have a lot of concerns. A lot of these teachers that are either non-renewed or up for non-renewal have been at Common Ground for a long time and are really loved by students in the community. Um, I think part of our philosophy in unionizing is that working conditions are learning conditions. So something like high student teacher ratios is not good for the students and it's not good for the teachers that we have common interests and our interests are the students' interests. And so um, students have been really disheartened, I think, to hear about some people that they really love and that really love them, um, potentially not returning to common ground next year. And that's caused them to, you know, follow our common ground philosophy of social justice and um, lead some demonstrations. And, um, you know, I think it's really important to know that that this is really student led and that um, we're very clear from from the union side of things that it's never okay to manipulate students for any type of labor gains. And so we have not been involved in the organizing from students or families at all. That's been totally led by them. And when you say students are leading this, there was a walkout after the cuts were announced. Correct. There's been a, a few events like that. Uh, well, still with us is Andrea Shu, who's NPR's labor and workplace correspondent. I'm wondering, Andrea, if you can, um, uh, when you hear about this particular situation in New Haven with this charter school, and when you're thinking about larger trends in this uh, in a larger labor movement, what stands out to you? Well, for one thing, collective bargaining is a very complicated and often fraught process. And, you know, we've been so focused on the election wins, you know, at Amazon, massive warehouse, you know, has voted to unionize at Starbucks, 40 some stores have voted to unionize. But the collective bargaining is still ahead. And that can be very tough. You know, sometimes unions don't actually come to a contract agreement with the companies, especially when the companies are, you know, staunchly anti-union. So I think we're going to see that a lot um, ahead with the companies that, you know, with the, you know, with the Starbucks stores that, that are voting to unionize. The other thing is that it sounds like Common Ground, you know, embraces progressive values. A lot of the, um, you know, Starbucks considers itself this highly progressive company. I think that's the reputation that Howard Schultz built over many decades. And I've also heard from small businesses, um, you know, that also embrace progressive values. And these, uh, some of these small, small business owners are, you know, a little bit taken aback that their employees are trying to unionize. And one actually said to me, you know, I think one of the reasons that that it's our businesses that are being targeted is that young, you know, especially young workers feel like, well, if you're progressive, then you should embrace the union. Um, and so, you know, this is, we are seeing a lot 
of nonprofits, other nonprofits also looking to unionize. Um, I'm not as familiar with schools because I think charter schools are do fall under the National Labor Relations Act, at least in some places. Um, public schools do not. But I think that we are seeing, you know, a shift in unionizing towards workplaces that you may not have traditionally thought of as hotbeds of union activity. Uh, here in Connecticut, we're seeing more academic institutions, Andrea, that are uh, students and uh, staff uh, pushing uh, students who work as um, whether they're instructors, but wanting more um, involvement and unions. Right. Student employees are pushing for a student union in our state mm -hmm. as well. So that's an interesting uh, trend that we've noted here in our state. Yeah, and I've seen that across the country, too. A lot of graduate student, undergraduate student workers who are looking to organize, and that's something I'm certainly interested in, in reporting more about. Uh, you've also covered nursing homes. When we think about uh, the pandemic uh, where there were job shortages, but just the working conditions. And yeah. uh, as we think about the labor market today, uh, really uh, employees feeling like, you know, they're in a position now to really ask for improvements. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that as part of this uh, larger uh, surge that we're seeing about more workers in, in different sectors uh, pushing for unions. Yeah, I mean, nursing homes are really in a in a very difficult position now. I think the the um, industry representing nursing homes say, you know, most of them are short staffed because they cannot hire staff right now, given the competition they have for workers. So you often interestingly hear nursing home owners or nursing home, you know, administrators say, we cannot hire certified nursing assistants because Amazon is paying $19 an hour or $22 an hour, and we cannot afford to pay more. I mean, you hear that a lot in the nursing home industry. And you think about it, nursing home workers, especially those who are tending to residents, you know, at their bedsides day after day, that was really some of the hardest work anywhere over the last two years, especially. But, you know, even pandemic aside, it, it's incredibly hard work. But in the pandemic, they had some of the worst um, working conditions just you know, COVID just sweeping through these nursing homes. And so this, you know, nursing homes, I think are in crisis. They aren't enough workers. Um, they're, you know, you'll hear the nursing home industry say, well, we need more money from the government. The government is looking at this, but also saying, you know, nursing homes need to staff up more, especially the ones that are um, privately owned and may have profits somewhere that they're not spending on the staff. So um, you know, I think it's all part of what we're seeing right now with employers desperate to hire workers, but especially hard for, for uh, in some industries like nursing homes right now. Well, I want to thank Andrea Shu for coming on our show, NPR's labor and workplace correspondent. Thank you for the context you provided. Oh, thank you so much, Lucy. And I want to thank Chelsea Farrell, an organizer with UAW Local 2110, and Emily Schmidt, who's a teacher at Common Ground High School, for coming on to tell us uh, what's happening in their community. And we'll look to see um, the response after that Wednesday meeting that you mentioned. Chelsea and Emily, thank you for your time. Of course, coming thank you for having us. Coming up after the break, we're going to pivot to the final days of the legislative session that's before the Connecticut General Assembly. We're going to hear from advocates for the incarcerated about what they want lawmakers to consider before the session ends. Stay with us.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Congregate settings like correctional facilities continue to have a higher risk of COVID-19 transmission. That's why advocates are pushing state lawmakers to come up with a, quote, comprehensive plan to protect the incarcerated. There are just a couple days left in Connecticut General Assembly's legislative session. Now, there's a Senate bill that would create a panel to consider compassionate release for those medically vulnerable. But groups like Catal Center for Equity, Health and Justice say that legislation doesn't go far enough. Joining us now on the phone is Kenyatta Mazani, Director of Organizing at the Catal Center. Kenyatta, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I mentioned uh, that advocates are calling for the state for on the state for a more comprehensive and transparent plan to address COVID-19 in correctional facilities in Connecticut. And so you're going to be hosting some events uh, in these uh, last few days of the session. Tell us what you're specifically asking for. Absolutely. Um, And just to name, I want to say major solidarity to the students and faculty at Common Ground High School. We've been following and stand in support of them, so all power to them. Just wanted to name that before we begin. Uh, But Lucy, you asked a really important question. Right now, the Connecticut Department of Corrections does not have a plan to slow the spread of COVID-19 in correctional facilities. You mentioned that it's a congregate care setting, and we've seen incarcerated people and their loved ones speak up very vocally about the issues that are happening behind the wall. Um, So we're seeing incarcerated people who do not have proper PPE, and that includes not having N95 masks and even having masks that are made out of this type of material that the underwear is made out of. Um, We've heard from loved ones that their family members have no clue what's happening and that they're not even properly cleaning. And just from the little bit of information that the DOC is sharing, um, we know that to date over 8,400 incarcerated people have tested positive for COVID. And the entire jail and prison population in our state is just at 9,000. So that's 85% of people to date have had COVID-19 in our correctional facilities. And those people will eventually come home potentially with long COVID. And so the plan that they, the Department of Corrections currently have is not a plan that's actually viable to slow the spread and save lives. I mentioned that Senate bill, and so there's been a real uh, focus on compassionate release, I believe, over the last two years when we think about the medically vulnerable uh, that are incarcerated. And so tell me about uh, that legislation and, and why uh, you know, your group believes it doesn't quite go far enough. Thank you. So SB 460 is an act to expand compassionate and medical release, as well as uh, public health earned release credits to incarcerated people so that it, in theory, gets them out of incarceration. But what it does is it actually just creates yet another panel within the Board of Pardons and Paroles. And even though it's supposed to expand medical release, we know that the Board of Pardons and Paroles has not even really given medical release these last few years. And Even if we look further at talking about other types of like compassionate release, the number of compassionate release that has been given out both during this pandemic and pre-pandemic have been significantly small. And so the panel that it's creating is a three-person panel of the members, the current members of the board and pardons and parole. It does not include public health experts. It does not create a legitimate pathway for decarceration. And if anything, it's supposed to release people on parole, but it's not even doing that. And then the expansion of the public health credits, uh, um, the release of the public health credits are severely limited as the bill is written to really slow the spread in our correctional facilities. So SB 460 is inadequate and it does not actually go far enough to release incarcerated people and actually cause a dent in slowing the spread. And decarceration is the number one recommended uh, advice from public health experts, both locally in Connecticut We've had a number of doctors from Yale talk about this at the onset of the pandemic, as well as nationally. 
Um, this is recommended by the New England Journal of Medicine. This is recommended by the National Academies for Sciences, Engineering, and Math. And this was most recently put as one of the most, uh, the number one ways to slow the spread being decarceration in correctional facilities by the Prison Policy Initiative, which is a local New England-based organization. So all signs are pointing to creating legitimate pathways and substantial pathways for decarceration. And SB 460 falls short of that. So, Kenyatta, what can be done realistically in the last uh, couple of days of the session by state lawmakers? So state lawmakers have, they have everything right now. The governor has not moved on releasing incarcerated people, so it really is up to lawmakers to amend SB 460 to make it substantive and actually release incarcerated people. And that's just one measure that would actually create a comprehensive and transparent COVID-19 plan. There are other things that we um, are calling for in our demands under our Freedom Now CT campaign, which you can find more at, um, at katalcenter.org, K-A-T-A-L-C-E-N-T-E-R.org. But other measures that um, would not necessarily be included in SB 460, but could be included in future um, pieces of legislation that include um, eliminating the practice of putting incarcerated people in solitary, not in humane isolation, not solitary confinement, uh, put them somewhere else, um, easing the housing restrictions for incarcerated people upon their release. Um, there was an individual early on in this pandemic who did not have his housing approved by the Department of Corrections so he could return home. And a few days later, he contracted COVID-19 and passed away. And so that's really unacceptable. So this is what lawmakers can do, expand SB 460, but also look to other measures that would actually give the Department of Corrections a legitimate and transparent COVID-19 plan and a substantive plan at best. You mentioned solitary. I understand the Connecticut Premier reported late last week that lawmakers have passed a bill for the second year in a row to limit the Department of Corrections' use of solitary confinement. Lamont's desk, he vetoed a similar proposal last year. What's Catal's response to the legislation before the governor now? We emphatically are standing in solidarity with Stop Solitary Connecticut, who has been pushing for the PROTECT Act for years, and we urge the governor to sign it not yesterday, not today, but yesterday. Um, it's absolutely needed in Connecticut. And so SB 459, which is the PROTECT Act, is one that we emphatically support. Can you remind our listeners when we talk about uh, the use of solitary and limiting it, you know, what this bill particularly would, um, would do? Yes, it would limit solitary confinement in extreme, only in very extreme cases. It would lower the threshold of the amount of time that someone could be in solitary confinement because right now it's uh, pretty unfettered in Connecticut how long you can be in solitary confinement. And it would also reduce things like in-cell restraints, which currently we do right now. So as we are having this conversation, because the PROTECT Act was not signed by the governor last year, there are individuals who may be held in in-cell shackling right now. And that is just inhumane for a quote-unquote, progressive state as we are in Connecticut. I understand there's also an ombuds office that would also uh, provide some oversight. It had been cut, I believe, more than 10 years ago to save money. So is that a, a positive step uh, to make sure that this practice uh, is limited as the bill and potential law calls for? It absolutely is. And the thing that you'll find within the Connecticut Department of Correction, you hear it in this bill with the PROTECT Act, and you hear it with what we're naming in our Freedom Now CT campaign, um, there needs to be oversight. The Department of Corrections right now is just operating in a, in a vacuum where the public does not have access to what's going on. Incarcerated people and their loved ones who are on the outside, um, the loved ones of incarcerated people who are on the outside trying to support them, 
um, don't have the ability to see what's happening within the Department of Corrections. It's incredibly opaque. And so this ombudsman as well in the Protect Act, as well as what we're calling for in our Freedom Now Connecticut campaign, which is an independent body of oversight, um, an independent oversight body of health experts to see the plan that they have for prevention and management of COVID-19 in state correctional facilities, those oversight councils in the DOC are absolutely needed. Well, Kenyatta Mazzani, again, Director of Organizing at the Catal Center for Equity, Health, and Justice. Thank you for coming on to talk about, uh, again, uh, some uh, efforts this week before this legislative session ends uh, to think about uh, the incarcerated, uh, pushing lawmakers to think about them and change in policies. I want to mention on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live, we'll have more information about uh, the Kital Center's Free Them Now CT campaign. Kenyatta, we appreciate your time today. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming on, and I hope that folks can join us on Wednesday at 10 a.m. at the Capitol. Thanks, Kenyatta. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today's show is produced by Katie, Katie Pellico. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. Coming up tomorrow, the journey to comprehensive content moderation on Twitter has been a long one, but the tech giant may be changing course. On the next Where We Live, we'll talk about what Twitter could look like under Elon Musk and if free speech and content moderation can coexist together. Are you still using Twitter? Join us. That's tomorrow.